0: the Mad Max Minute where Nathan might as well be better off dead in Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick.
1: And I'm Julia. And
0: today we're talking about Minute 25 which begins with Max making a deal with Nathan and it ends with the feral child running towards the compound. And since it is Friday we arranged to have some fresh eyes here to talk about the minute and those eyes belong to none other than Curtis Blaze from the Better Off Dead Minute. Hey everybody how you doing? We're doing great Curtis thanks for coming on. I'm so glad you guys asked me me to come on i love mad max now you don't just love mad max you've actually been sticking with us and listening to the mad max minute how what is your assessment of us so far (laughs) If I I can be so bold as to ask.
2: Well, not to step on anybody's toes. I usually try to have about four minutes that I'm listening to daily that I keep up with. And that is, you know, Star Star Wars, of course. Mm -hmm. This latest round was Alien, Star Wars, You Guys, and Back to the Future, and one other one. What was that?
0: I'll admit that is rather intimidating company.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously, when it comes to... Good, just good pod, good radio. You guys are uh, oh oh Lord of the Rings, duh. Okay, when it comes to just good radio, you guys are are tops. You really break it down in a way that I like. It isn't just about making jokes; it's about really breaking the movie down and getting into it.
1: I've been thinking about listening to Back to the Future Minute because I really like those movies, and I actually don't listen to Minute podcasts because I'm intimidated by the commitment by listening to him every day. And I hear stories of people getting behind and they have like 20 episodes in their queue just waiting to be listened to. And that like frightens me. But, you know, if I can commit to one, maybe I can grow and listen to others. So I think I want to start with Back to the Future Minute.
2: That is an excellent one to start with. And they are good right off the bat. You know, there's a lot of podcasts, probably mine included, where people listen. And they, it takes some five, 10 episodes to really find their footing. The Back to the Future guys they hit it ground running they were they were good from the beginning
0: yeah we had scott on i think it was actually last week he was very fun to have on him and i think it's nick jimenez that also hosts the back to the future minute and those two together they're a nice powerhouse so i haven't listened to it personally you'll have to let me know how it is because right now i've got yeah uh, you're in the boat that i'm afraid of
2: (laughs)
1: of all sorts of backed up
2: all you gotta do is listen to it at 2.3 speed (laughs) and commit seven hours a day to just having lonely time in front of a computer to listen
0: that's my secret
1: yeah that's all right i i think i think i need to just commit more time to podcasts
0: was it listening to all of these movies by minute podcast that got you interested in producing your own i have been i don't know what to call it i used to do a show called the what i wish i didn't know
2: show which in spirit was very similar to ross and carrie's or, oh no, Ross and Carrie, except I sucked at it compared to them. <laughs> and it was in the 90s, and it was mm-hmm. on like a micro cassette tape recorder that I would then broadcast over an FM transmitter that went three blocks. Whoa. And that sort nice. of morphed into a show called The Argument, which kind of went over to being broadcast on S- Citizen Band Channel 17 for a while. And then that turned into what we called at the time, internet radio. And I kind of revived the What I Wish I Didn't Know show at that point, did it for a couple years, and then I kind of got back out of it. I started listening to the Star Wars Minute guys, and I'm like, I could do this. I could totally talk about movies one minute at a time forever.
0: I am so glad I asked that question. (laughs) Well, I just want to say I did no idea you had such a pedigree in the homespun radio business. This is kind of crazy that you are more or less a pioneer as much as you may not want to wear that title of quasi podcasting maybe <laughs> into real podcasting that's really cool
2: i forgot to say that i also distributed it via uh
0: zines nice so yeah you're, you're kind of an old school podcaster from I guess I am. the days before podcasting was a thing
2: yes <laughs> i don't really want to claim that <laughs>
0: as much as you may not want to wear the moniker of pioneer it is pretty remarkable that you have that uh, distinction as someone who's been around in the game so long <laughs> well it was fun times for sure so you told us off the microphone what got you involved with the movie better off dead but can you repeat that now that we're on the microphone
2: you mean why we started doing better off dead yeah, my podcasting partner Jason and I—I I went to him one day. We used to be in a band together, and we've always kind of kept in touch and trade movies and stuff back and forth. And I've always kind of wanted to do another project with him because he's—you know—we're sort of of the same mind artistically. And I heard the uh, Star Wars minute, and I said, you know, oh, I can do this. This would be great. So I went to him and I and I gave him the concept, and he said he—you know—he didn't know about it. He said he didn't know if he wanted to do that thing, and I said, well, why don't you pick the movie? And he said, well, better off dead. And I said, oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Better off dead. You know, I like the movie, but I was thinking, oh, comedy. That's different than what I imagined. Doing a, a comedy in a minute-by-minute format is very interesting and very different than uh, something like an action-adventure, and I didn't think it was going to work out.
0: I imagine it's kind of like a t- walking a tightrope, so that you want to celebrate and examine the jokes that are in the movie, but not kind of beat them to the point where they just slump over like a dead horse. <laughs>
2: Well, yes, that. And, you know, we are, we're really stuck. If we're funnier than the movie, then that's bad. If we're not as funny as the movie, that's bad too. So walking the tightrope is a a really good way to describe that. Mm -hmm. I myself kind of, I like to delve into like what happened between scenes. That's kind of my thing. Mm -hmm. Like the connective tissue between the scenes that we don't see and try to figure out logically how things go from one scene to another. And that's kind of my, eh, that's how I have fun with it. Jason likes the gags. (laughs) He's really he just really likes the movie. Mm-hmm. So we have different things to talk about that way. Just <laughs> right. the conversation
0: going sometimes for an hour. I say, I've only gotten a couple weeks into listening to your guys's podcast and it's definitely one that's going to stay in my rotation. Well, that's cool. Thank you. So one
2: of the uh, uh, it's nice to meet one of the six <laughs>
0: <laughs> listeners that we have. So, speaking of scenes and connective tissue we might as well get into the minute at hand oh i can't wait as i mentioned earlier we're picking up with max pretty much kneeling on the ground next to nathan who has found himself pinned to a tire by arrows that have lodged in his body and a delirious and gasping nathan reaches over to max and says thank you he's thanked him several times and max is very quick to say save it i'm just here for the gasoline and nathan's like yeah yeah as much as you like just take me back and i'm definitely giving nathan a bit more of a normal conversational cadence than he possesses in the movie because he is just gasping for air trying to get these words out to convince max that he should stick around and save him instead of just leaving
2: one of the things i noticed about nathan in the scene is that at first he seems really grateful Max is there to save him. But then, even though he's having a hard time conveying it, you can see that he's disappointed that he's that he's upset that Max is just there for the gas.
1: I imagine that the compound dwellers rarely meet people who are interested in anything else. I'll bet everybody that they come across is like, "Oh, you have gas? Can can I have some gas?" That's all anybody is interested in. Is their gasoline. They don't they're not interested in them for their personalities. <laughs>
2: I think, I don't know. They're probably interested in him for more than their personalities based on the previous minutes.
1: Uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's... I'll I'll say one thing. This week has been a little rough because of of that specifically. <laughs> this week really does emphasize
2: the brutality of the world that they're depicting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is no there is no hope in this
0: world because even when you find yourself being delivered in a, in a way that Nathan is, there's still like an alter an ulterior motive. There's something else working behind the scenes. No one is running out and helping people for the sake of helping another person. And one thing that really stands out here is that Max is very deliberate about making sure that Nathan understands that he is there for the gasoline, and it's a level of—I wouldn't say negotiation, but it's—it's it's a level of understanding that he makes very clear before he does anything. That way, he doesn't find himself in another situation where the other party is like, "Well, now you're going to do this," and Max has to say, "No, I." never agreed to that. He doesn't want another situation like he had with the gyro captain.
1: And that reminds me of Star Wars in the first one or the fourth one or whatever, A New Hope.
2: I was gonna say. Yes,
1: Han Solo does the same thing. He is very clear about why he is helping them. He expects to get paid and he mentions it to different people at different times to make sure his bases are covered. He wants to get paid and that's the only.
2: Well, they have, a. the two movies have a lot in common. I mean, they're both basically Westerns.
1: Yes. Yes, very true.
2: And Han Solo and Mad Max are almost the same. Han Solo is a little bit nicer.
0: (laughs) I think I'll answer one movie reference with another because this is what we do (laughs) it's the joker in the dark knight who specifically says if you do something well you never do it for free max is really good at driving and he's really good at moving people around apparently because he's done it at least once so far this movie so if he's going to rescue this guy he's dang sure gonna get some compensation in return for it i'd expect nothing less actually
2: well yeah I think the fact that he kills Grinning Mohawker as he's walking up to Nathan, that might make Nathan think that he's on his side Mm -hmm. as opposed to just one of the Marauders or a person that's just in it for himself. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, at some point during this week, I I mentioned that I wanted Max to go down there and kill the Grinning Mohawker out of vengeance, because that's what I would have done. This Grinning Mohawker is the one that raped Kathleen? Kathleen McKay. Kathleen McKay. She doesn't get a character name, so we just call her her actual name, because she gets a name. Oh,
0: okay. Name. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, her name, her name on IMDb is Victim.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, we call her Kathleen.
2: Do you think he kills Grinning Mohawker out of vengeance, though? No. Or does he do it because it's a convenient way for him to get at the gas?
0: I think there's multiple steps to it. One, I think there is the tiniest twinge of vengeance because Max was a cop. Max was a family man. And so he kills Grinning Mohawker instead of just incapacitating him as kind of the the slightest amount of vengeance. But I think he mainly kills Grinning Mohawker because it's easier than tying him up. I agree. And it's a way for him to kind of, for lack of a better metaphor kill two birds with one stone incapacitate (laughs) yeah incapacitate someone who could be an issue and you know dispense a little wasteland justice
2: yeah i think it's just as a person who's concerned with storytelling from a meta point of view i want max to feel nothing at this point i want max to be a brutal empty man who just kills this guy because the guy needs killing and it and it gets him to his next objective so that he can then learn so that he can then grow for the rest of the movie and become attached and become the guy that helps save him
1: mm. yeah if he's gonna have a character arc he needs to start somewhere that's not great
2: and i don't know that saving the gyro captain was the beginning of that because he does even though it's inconvenient for him He does have a slave and that could be a handy thing to have in the wasteland.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you should mention that because I never once considered the idea of the gyro captain being like someone that Max found useful beyond leading him to that point. And I guess you could say that because he kept him chained up, he kept him chained up for a utilitarian purpose, even though he's just abandoned him (laughs) on top of that hill.
2: Well, that's true.
1: Yeah, I think he used him to the point that it was no longer a convenience cuz tying him up to a tree, not even bothered to feed him. It was convenient. Hmm. It it didn't put him out at all. He didn't have to sacrifice food or attention to the gyro captain. He just no. left him over there.
2: Yeah, that's an excellent point. I'm completely wrong about that. <laughs>
0: No, see, that's the nice thing about Max being so straight-faced through most of this, is that you can try and read into what he's thinking, and because he's so straight-faced about it, you can kind of project what you want onto him, because he's... You know, that man with no name, that blondie from the Westerns. Mm -hmm. You can kind of project onto him what you want to project onto him. And I think that's one of the reasons that Max is such a compelling hero to follow. There's that quiet enough aspect to him that you can relate to him, even though he's a very unrelatable character. He's very closed off. He's very stoic. He doesn't have these big emotional outbursts. Everything he does is very utilitarian. Max has made his intentions to Nathan very clear. And Nathan, because he has literally no other options, has just agreed. And I definitely get the sense that based on Nathan's injuries, he's got one arrow through his right side. He's got a crossbow bolt from a wrist-mounted crossbow in his left side. And the way he's gasping and struggling to speak, I think he's got lungs that are on the verge of collapse. And so I jumped on WebMD to read up a little bit about, you know, what happens when your lungs collapse.
2: (laughs) Before you do that, I just wanted to say I really admire Max and their dedication to still depicting him having those cop instincts. Mm Mm-hmm for him to cut off the ends but not pull
0: it out. Yes. But anyway you could do your thing. WebMD me. A collapsed lung is called a pneumothorax. It's a buildup of air in the space between the lung and the chest wall. Basically when you breathe in your lungs expand and if air gets into that space between your ribcage and your lungs your lungs can't pneumatically expand the way they normally do. And so you start seeing a lot of the symptoms of a collapsed lung being you know shortness of breath, sudden, severe sharp chest pains. Those can get worse with altitude change, just like flying in an airplane or going up and over really steep hills. You know, it's one of those things where it's life-threatening because you get to a point where you just can't get oxygen into your bloodstream. And we see a couple of shots down the way that just like you said max does not remove those arrows he keeps them in there because those arrows in place are probably the only thing keeping extra air from getting in around those lungs the coagulated blood that started to clot around those arrows are creating kind of like the body's natural attempt at a vacuum but nathan is still gasping for air
2: and that is cop instinct right there
0: Mm -hmm. because as a policeman max would have elementary first aid training
2: yes and probably as a policeman for the main force oh what are they called the main force police they would have really extreme medic training
0: yeah with how far they have to venture out and how alone they can be in those circumstances they really need to be exceptionally trained in every aspect granted roop and charlie didn't necessarily demonstrate that (laughs) those are names from a long time ago
1: i don't know charlie survived and that's not nothing he got like sliced in the throat and he survived so
0: i will refrain from doing my robot voice i feel like that might have been in bad taste the first time i did it (laughs) (laughs) learn
1: and grow from doing our Mm podcast
0: yeah like when we learned never to do australian accents (laughs)
2: i remember that show
0: yeah (laughs) we see max free nathan from the tire he takes his bolt cutters and he cuts off the long arrow and he throws him in the back of the black on black and the next that we see of them is the black on black driving past the burnt out remains of the camel pen but in the screenplay there are additional little snippets that we don't get in the movie one of them being an interior of the black on black and a situation where Nathan is starting to slip into unconsciousness and Max reaches back, grabs him by the shoulder, shakes him and says, stay alive, stay alive. And then another instance where it's another exterior shot of the black-on-black driving by and we actually see a couple of marauders watch the car drive by and then use tiny pocket mirrors to signal to other raiders across the valley.
1: I really like the thought of that. I, I like the insight into how they are communicating and their internal organization
0: and how they know to come back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then have you
2: noticed that once again we have George Miller having them communicate in a way that he then brought back for another movie later. Mhm. Mirrors came back thematically as ways of illuminating the leader in Fury Road, sort of like like spotlights.
1: Yeah.
0: When a Morton Joe comes out to give his address. They swing the mirrors around.
1: I think I've said it before. I can't remember if it was during Road Warrior or during Mad Max 79, but I think I've said it before. I appreciate how analog everything is. Yeah. And now how they've made things work without power. And it's, I mean, it's going back to our own history as society. You know, we made things work before we had power. And, you know and we invented ways to get things done you know they've done it again Mm
0: -hmm. yeah it goes back to that whole underlying theme of you know realistic hope for humanity it's like yeah things are gonna get pretty dark but overall humanity is gonna survive like we're gonna find ways to keep going despite global catastrophe yeah and then whatever mad max movie you watch there's still that that underlying theme of you know what we're still here and we're still awful terrible human beings but you know what we're not gone yet
2: <laughs> and that's evident in all of the societies mm-hmm. especially especially in fury road but even in even in mad max you can see the beginning of you know warrior tribes gas tribes Mm -hmm. that's already happening it's just a matter of everyone figuring out that it's easier to work together than it is to fight each other and probably the warrior tribes are the last ones the marauders are going to be the last ones on board with the concept because it is just so easy for them to take
0: yeah, but you can't have an entire kingdom of just Ironborn. You know, you've gotta balance that out. I see the I see the horde here in this instance, kinda like the Greyjoys. You know, they go out, they take, they maraud, but you know, you need those people that are willing to you know, work. You need your your papagallos, your Tina Turners as Auntie Entity, you need your Immortan Joes, people that are able to put down a flag and say, This is where we start to build again. And I mean, they all have their different ways of doing it and their different varying levels of morality, but you know, you can you can wander and you can move around. But eventually If you want something that's going to survive you You know if you want to set up a legacy You know you got to be bold enough to stop
2: And that's one of the brilliant Things about these movies is you see It happening in each step Mm -hmm. you see the breakdown In 79 you see the the Different tribes in uh, Road Warrior You see people starting to Work together in Beyond Thunderdome and then you see all of those Being brought together in a Morton Joe's Kingdom Mm -hmm. all the factions United
1: yeah I really like that All along the way we see the seeds of society planting themselves and growing and we see that progression all along the scale of morality it it's not just the good guys who are doing this it's not just the bad guys everybody is for better or worse wherever they fall on that scale they're building society society is not just for good people who only want to do good things everybody builds society
2: and it can't just be the strong that build it
1: right people think of the weak as as the weakest link And therefore they must go But just because people aren't Strong in whatever way you want them To be strong doesn't mean they're not strong in other Ways.
2: That comes up thematically In the characters of uh, What's her name? Master and Blaster You see that in Master and then you see it again In Immortan Joe's little brother Corpulus Colossus <laughs>
0: Wow. Look at this guy
1: I am so lucky to be partnered With somebody with such a good memory Because <laughs> Well, I got nothing.
0: <laughs> I'm able to remember names from these movies. I had someone earlier today ask me if I remember, you know, going to school with someone and they lifted off maybe three or four names, and I only recognized maybe like one of them. <laughs> so <laughs> I may not be able to remember things that actually happened, but by golly, if it's a fictitious world created by an Australian filmmaker, I'm your guy. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of building up society, the next shot we get in this minute is looking through the windscreen. We are looking past the blower over the bonnet of the black on black, and we are approaching the main gate of the compound. And it may sound weird, but I feel like getting up close to this compound, it looks smaller than I expected it. You know, we've seen it from the top of this hill for the past week and a half, I think it was, and it looked smaller so large and now that we're right up close to it it weirdly enough looks smaller and more fragile yeah
1: yes i wonder if their strategy the way they light it up at night is in itself a defense mechanism like puffing itself up making it look bigger more intimidating harder to penetrate so maybe they lit it in such a way to make it look big
2: i could go with that you know the sides of their compound are a couple of strings of barbed wire.
1: Yeah, that kind of mystifies me a little bit. I mean, they've got the moat and the barbed wire, and it just doesn't seem like much. Like it doesn't seem like they're enough. They're
2: just ramping right into it. Wes jumps right into the compound, causes havoc, jumps right back out again. It doesn't yeah, really so... seem it doesn't seem like much of a challenge for them to get in and out of it if they really want to. Unless we are witnessing them coming up with the idea of ramping over that tiny fence for the first time time
0: yeah as that very mo- well could be the case yeah i mean
1: i think it kind of must be the case because Because otherwise, why would they
2: attack a flamethrower head-on at the most fortified position in the front?
1: Right. We did see a few minutes ago, last week sometime, we saw a motorcycle attempt to jump over the fence. Now, in the actual scene, it appears that he made it over the fence. But in the screenplay, it clarifies that his bike caught on the fence and he kept going the rider kept going and oh, okay. landed inside and was immediately taken out
0: I say it's that compound full of people that i think really deters them from vaulting over one at a time yeah on their motorcycles
1: which is still dangerous because when we first see the compound the gyro captain tells us that there's about 30 people inside. Mm -hmm. Well, during that initial fight, I think we see two or three people go down.
0: Yep. And then they lose another eight. And then they lose another
1: eight. So their numbers are dwindling. If Mm -hmm. they dwindle too much, then the marauders will have no trouble just overwhelming them, I
0: think it's a war of attrition and the marauders have the ability to go out and capture or compel more fighters compound dwellers do not they are locked at that specific number and they are not getting any more than that yeah
2: when nathan and kathleen took off and went to the uh i'm assuming the south wait a minute west sun to the north uh there was another group of people that took off going to the south. Mm-hmm. How many people were in that? Were, were, did those end up being the two people that were that are on Humongous' vehicle
0: later? Well, the Lord Humongous goes after one of the scout vehicles, and then there are two other detachments of the horde that go after the other scouts. Yeah, I think scouts.
1: there's four scout vehicles in total. Yeah. And... Okay.
0: If I'm trying to think forward to, I think it's minute 30, when they eventually show up again, I want to say that there's at least four bound captives on the vehicles of the Marauders. There might be as many as five or six, which means they got all of the other scout vehicles.
2: Well, yeah, I assume. I assume yeah. they get everybody every They got every everybody time. in the yeah. Nature of Evil.
1: If there are indeed five or six, that's a lot of people left alive. They killed Kathleen. Mm-hmm. Very purposefully killed Kathleen. They left Nathan for dead. I wonder if they were counting if Wes and his group, who left in a hurry, were counting on a cleanup crew coming through and taking the captive.
0: Yeah, that might have been the I- case. I
1: it just doesn't seem like a good use of resources to keep prisoners alive.
0: Yeah, well, by the end of this minute, I don't think any of them are left alive. Are, are left alive. Okay. Yeah, well, you'll we'll be able to see that firsthand yeah. exactly coming what up in the next week or these so. Scouts.
2: Well, that kind of touches on something that I was curious about myself. They killed Kathleen Mm -hmm. right away. He, you know, he raped her and then he killed her right away. Does that seem like a a business as usual move?
1: Mm, I would say no. I think that his raping Kathleen and then killing her was think unique, mostly because there's more men around than women.
2: He wasn't. Well, yeah, I mean, she wouldn't starve to death right away. He wouldn't have to spend many resources to kind of keep her around if he wanted to.
1: I think, and we talked about this at some point during this week, that his killing her was another form of climax for him.
2: Oh, oh God. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that it was because rape isn't about sexual pleasure. It's about power. So him shooting her so so deliberately was another like power climax for him.
2: Well, and he was really relishing it because there was no one around to watch him, yet he took his time, mm-hmm. raised the... A- the crossbow, you know, pointed at her, smiled, did a whole pause, did a whole bad guy pause, then then took her out. Right. Even though and nobody supposedly was watching at that point. Yeah. Everyone had taken off.
1: Yeah. And even at that point, I don't think even she was watching. I don't no, think she no, was conscious she wasn't. She was... at that point. So nobody was there to witness it except him. And he mm-hmm. did it all for himself.
2: And he was just smiling. Mm-hmm. He was just yeah. enjoying himself. So much so that when Max came up later, he was still smiling when he when Max smiling. got his attention yep. and his and his smile was frozen on his face at that point while he went for the crossbow to try and uh, get away from Max. Yes. He was still enjoying it at that point. But then juxtapose that. Okay. I, I <clears throat> Just stop me if this is too uncomfortable for, for your uh, intended audience. <laughs> Grinning Mohawker is in the act of raping Kathleen. And Gyro Captain is watching. And the glimpse of it that we see is not like your normal brutal rape being depicted in movies. He's... I don't know how to say this. He seems unusually gentle, let's say that, in his method compared to what you would expect. Did you guys get that?
1: Thinking back on it, I see what you mean.
2: I mean, he's like he's like holding her and embracing her and like not doing a big, it's, you
0: know.
1: Yeah, it's more intimate than rape is usually depicted.
0: Yeah, I think yeah. when we talked about it, we mentioned that he slumped over her just like a lump of flesh oh, okay. covering her. And it's definitely not as frenzied and violent as you'll see in a lot of more modern depictions of rape and sexual assault, for sure. And I'm not quite sure what to, to well, glean from it, that.
2: Maybe it's maybe that just wasn't his thing. Maybe, like Julia said, the killing part was the real climax for this guy.
0: Yeah,
1: I think just like in real life, you know, no two rape cases are the same. When you encounter a victim, no two victims are the same. They don't handle it the same. They don't recover in the same way. No two rape scenarios are the same. They're very individual. So when we see them portrayed in media, I think a lot of times we see them portrayed in the same way, in a very violent way. And...
2: That's a good point.
1: I think there's just... there's a a huge variety in the way that rapes take place mm. and we're seeing an example of a different way than maybe what we're used to seeing
2: well maybe a more realistic one too maybe one where she just knows that she's in trouble and so like many real life rapists she just gives in and goes docile so that mm-hmm. she can live through it
0: yeah. although i did get the sense that he was really rough like you can kind of see as she's lying there after he's finished with her that she's bruised up in the face
1: yeah now oh,
0: yeah she is
1: we suspect that most of the violence the hitting and the beating happened prior to the rape so i i think along those lines the same lines that he got his rocks off on killing her he also got his rocks off on beating her Mm -hmm. To the point where by the time he actually technically raped her, she was just no longer there. She was barely conscious, maybe in and out. She does seem like she's moving around a little bit, but very out of it. Mm -hmm. So I think his jollies were in the more violent aspects of this particular encounter.
2: Just brutal. Yes, very brutal. And that's the thing about these minutes too. It really drives home how far the world has fallen. People are just meat at this point. Max is using the guy for gas. The marauders are using people for, you know, everybody is just using everybody else as much as possible at this point in the world.
0: Yeah, Virginia Hay later on straight up says that Max is trading in human flesh. Right. And she's very condemning for that fact. And yeah, from a moral standpoint, you don't, you don't use people like that, but in the setting of the wasteland, sometimes survival takes precedent. As Max approaches the compound, he undoes his seatbelt and he grabs Nathan from the back seat and we cut over to the burnt out wood and wire of the camel fence and we get our first real good look of the feral child who kind of crawls out of his system of rabbit holes and we get to see that first full face shot of this child who... Doesn't say a single thing over the course of this entire movie. And yet he's such a main character to be featured in the opening credits. This kid, as we mentioned way back in, I think, minute one or two, is called the Feral Child and he's played by a kid named Emil Minty. And I mentioned that he had a pretty short acting career and then he retired and now he's a jeweler in Sydney. But he actually had quite a lot of things that he did. And uh, if I could just run through his, uh, best known for list from imdb obviously there's the role of the feral child in Ro- in the road warrior he was a character named dodo in a 1992 short called road to alice he was a kid named wayne barbudo in 1988's peter and pompey which is part of the touch the sun series and then he was also andy Marlowe in 1983's the winds of Jara. and so he had like i think a total of about 10 different credits acting credits specifically. Three of those being the feature-length films. He did one short, one made-for-TV movie, a couple of miniseries, and a few television shows.
1: What, what are his years of activity?
0: From 1981 to 1992.
1: Okay, so he was active for 11 years. Yep. How old was he when he started?
0: He was eight years old in The Road Warrior, which okay. was his first appearance. So
1: he was... 19 Hmm. more or less yeah he was a child actor (laughs) yeah so emile minty yeah i don't want to be critical because you know i don't i don't enjoy judging people on their looks but he's not necessarily an attractive child and he Mm -hmm. looks like the type of person who would not go through teenagerhood well (laughs) so i'm curious what he looks like as a teenager
0: well in the 1992 short he was featured in, Road to Alice, he plays a character named Dodo, and he's kind of a street tough that is one of the the muscle characters for the main antagonist that inspires the main character to leave town. And you can actually watch the entirety of Road to Alice on the um, website of the Australian Film Television and Radio School, and uh, I'll post a link to the listeners page so that people can go watch it. It's about half an hour. I don't know the name of the main kid. In the movie but hugo weaving is in it so that's kind of cool yeah but yeah emile minty spends a lot of time just messing with things in the background i think he pulls a lizard out of a terrarium and then he jumps on a bed at some point you know he's a little doughy but you know what teenager isn't besides all the (laughs) athletes whatnot but you know i was a doughy kid so shut up
2: He looks a lot like, like, I really recognize him now. He looks a lot like he did as a kid still. He's not one of those guys that look completely different as a grown-up than he did as a kid. His face is still totally there. I'm not sure what they altered all on him while he was playing Feral Kid. Probably contacts, probably wig. I
0: was definitely a wig.
2: Maybe a denture kind of thing. But in an interview he just did a few years ago, eh, he totally looks like the
0: Feral Kid. Yeah. (laughs) As an adult in a good way when we were watching road war which is the the road warrior behind the scenes documentary that comes on the blu-ray set that we bought he is dressed very normally he's got a short cropped haircut he's wearing a polo shirt but yeah just the overall dimensions of his face you know he's definitely still there and then at some point as he's sitting in front of the camera giving an interview george miller walks in and they start talking back and forth and reminiscing and catching up and you can tell that george miller just instantly recognizes him without even Mm -hmm. being with Without even needing to be told, "Hey, this is Emil Minty.
1: Yeah, it was. It was a really sweet moment. Like it was almost like George was just like passing by the interview set, and they saw each other, and they're like, "Oh my goodness, hi! It's so nice to see you again." And they hug each other, and it's actually a really sweet moment yeah. of this little reunion because it's it's quite possible that George Miller hadn't seen him since nineteen eighty.
0: Since that winter in the desert.
1: Yes. <laughs> Make it sound ominous.
2: Boy, and what an impact this character has had on I call it the trilogy, I guess the quadrilogy now. He had a more humanizing impact on the character Of Mad Max than I think the kids in Beyond Thunderdome did. Mm -hmm. There was some chemistry on screen between these two. You could see the way that they connected. And the fact that their relationship had an arc from him not liking him, you know, and trying to shoo him away to, you know kind of taking him on and eventually trusting his life to him. This kid just turned in an amazing performance in this movie.
0: Yeah, and, and especially considering that he never utters a single word. And there's going to be a nice little bit of blocking that we're going to see on Monday with how the feral child interacts with max you know you just listed all the ways that max interacts with the feral child but there's all of this unspoken you know interaction from the feral child to max that changes over the course of this movie as well and so you can see that it's really a two-way street between max and the feral child
2: yeah the feral child is growing as a result of his contact with max he's finding he's finding someone To hold on to, too. He's not just an animal at the edges of the society anymore.
0: Yeah, you almost get the sense that the feral child is part of this compound, but he doesn't have anyone that he can really latch onto as a reliable father figure. And, you know, this mysterious stranger comes and he interacts with him. And over time, you know, they get that bond. And I think Max is very open to this. And we alluded to Max's son Sprague when he found the uh, music box Mm -hmm. and... In a while, we're going to see what Max eventually does with that music box as he tosses it to the feral child. And so they have that very paternal connection.
1: I wonder about the feral child and his history before we see him pop out of the hole in the ground. Do you think that he, prior to this, he comes and goes from the compound as he pleases? Or do you think he's been wandering in the wilderness and has also, like the Marauders and like Max... Found the compound and wants to get inside.
0: I'd like to think that the feral child is the child of workers that were at the refinery before the collapse. And then during the collapse, those workers maybe something happened to them. Maybe they went, maybe they left someday and never came back. And so I feel like the feral child was at that refinery complex before Papagallo and the rest of them showed up. And so the rest of these people show up. And that's why the feral child is you know, spending all of his time in his rabbit holes. You know, he doesn't spend a lot of time hanging around with the other compound dwellers because I think he still, you know, hasn't warmed up to them and they, you know, try and take care of him.
1: Then from his point of view, they're invaders.
0: Yeah, you know, he still doesn't quite...
1: And why would he trust them?
0: ...want to incorporate them into his life fully.
1: I like that, that he... It it makes me sad to think that he might have been abandoned there either on purpose or by circumstance. That makes me really sad. I mean, he had to have been abandoned at some point Mm -hmm. because he's a child without parents they had to go somewhere so it's sad no matter what but to think that his his parents worked at this facility and something happened and caused them to disappear in some way that's yeah it's very sad
0: yeah there are a lot of sad details in these movies if you look close enough (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: he he is exactly the right age to have been abandoned when he was about four
0: yeah we we very purposely do not have a sad bell like the indiana jones po- podcast has because if we did it would be ringing a lot yeah <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing i'm good at it's bringing up sad things <laughs> he's a lot like newt yes, in aliens absolutely newt was
2: absolutely the feral child too only not as far gone
0: i would say newt not, doesn't have a cool boomerang either but, you know, Newt can speak and has a cat. So I guess, you know, trade-offs either way. <laughs> well, she was abandoned more recently. Exactly. You know, Exactly.
2: God, he's, him not being able to speak. And he's about eight, so he's about three when he was abandoned. How did he live? Was he just eating random plants when he got hungry, just figuring stuff out? Just learning as he went?
1: Wow, yeah.
2: Was there a cupboard full of Twinkies somewhere? <laughs> and then those ran out, and then he switched over to grubs? <laughs> And going up to that green, green hill that Max is hiding on and trying to eat the plants there and leaves off the trees and just experimenting until he got it
0: right and lived. And I say at some point he got really good with that bladed boomerang. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of rabbits in this area. As We see at least two rabbits. We saw one last week. We see another one next week. You know, there's rabbits everywhere. I mean, he's running around in their dugout warrens. So, I mean, he gets really practiced with that boomerang and he can, you know, get his dinner that way.
2: Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And that's probably how he, uh, that probably is how... he how he survived yeah that is a very specific skill to pick up boomeranging
0: yeah, and it's a very specific piece of equipment that he has. That giant fur glove of his has chainmail on the palm so that right. he can grab the boomerang out of the air. It's like, where do you find something like that?
1: Right, and wouldn't you need that glove before you learn, successfully learn how to hunt with a boomerang?
0: Maybe that was a hobby of someone who lived in the compound before the collapse. Yeah. And that glove was just there. Yeah. Could be. I was saying, there's a lot we don't necessarily know, but it sure is fun to speculate.
1: Yeah, the well, history of that refinery. That's
2: one of the things that separates this movie from all of the other gravel pit, post-apocalypse, uh, altered car movies. There's real w- world building in this one. Mm-hmm. We can speculate on reasons for things and why they exist. And they make logical sense. You know, it isn't It isn't some unrealistic thing. And this is going back to what Julia was saying earlier. It's all analog. All of these things could really happen. There's no, like in some gravel pit movies where suddenly everybody has lasers because it's the future. <laughs>
1: yeah. Right.
2: <laughs> the kid has a piece of steel that he throws. Yeah. And when he was a little kid, he saw other people throwing the piece of steel for fun or because that's how they went out hunting. And so that's what he picked up on. That's his thing.
1: I can easily imagine, you know, whatever small group of people worked at and lived near this refinery facility that they would have had hobbies bordering on necessity of hunting small animals uh particularly rabbits because we know rabbits in australia they have a thing and that those skills of hunting with a boomerang that's just something that was around it's something people did there were you know hunting boomerangs at the at people's homes there were the the appropriate gloves they were around mm-hmm. and as a child as a young child the feral child saw these things being used and i I can imagine that a lot of his training and understanding of how to do it was just from watching people from a very young age.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, we also don't know what the aboriginal uh, population is like at this time either. We don't have any reference to them.
1: That, I'm a little embarrassed to say. That's something we have never thought of before. I don't know what the current, or even from the late 70s, early 80s, what the aboriginal population was like. Are there still tribes of aborigines living out in the bush?
2: According to the gods, must be crazy there were.
1: Yeah, right? <laughs> so,
0: Yeah, there are other examples of that. In 1984, a movie called the, Where the Green Ants Dream we mentioned it very quickly last season because there's a couple of overlap between the actors that were in that movie and the actors in this movie. And where the Green Ants Dream, it's a story of an Aboriginal tribe. They have this spot of land where they live and these white developers come in and want to bulldoze everything and they have to like go to court and you know, sue for the government to protect the land that they lived on for all of this time. And I think it's a worthwhile question, you know, if you've got people that are used to living on a continent without all of the modern amenities, and suddenly all of the modern amenities are gone, it's probably not going to affect them all that much. What's going to affect them are all of the people that have lost what they're used to, and have gotten violent and desperate. Yeah. Once again, you know, white foreigners giving (laughs) the aborigines a hard time. So,
2: they must be just so deep in the continent than away from society. Mm -hmm.
0: I'm willing to bet that's what it is. Like, we never see them because, you know, they're just off doing their own thing.
2: If you're 13 hours away from the nearest nuclear warhead going off, do you feel that still?
1: I don't think so.
0: I think it depends on which way the wind's blowing. Yeah, sure, but you know,
1: cuz I grew up in a place where it could have been attacked and if it was attacked then I we would have no hope there's no point in even trying to get away cuz we would be dead. Um, and I remember, like, um, every year we'd get in the mail like the evacuation plan, and we would never read it because we're like, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> it's not. We live like three miles from where we'd be attacked. We're not going anywhere.
2: Oh yeah, you're done for. Yeah, we're we done were. For. <laughs> We had our version of that where I grew up was we were an hour and a half away from the place that was going to be attacked. So we would live for a few days before the fallout got us.
1: Right, right. And I think our evacuation plans were always head north mm-hmm. and I don't remember how far north they wanted us to go but not 13 hours north I mean 13 hours north is like the middle of Canada and yeah, so I don't I don't think they wa- wanted us to go 13 hours away
2: I don't know that seems like a pretty appropriate place to go if there's a nuclear war yeah lots of woods mm-hmm. away from the fallout well, until the global wind patterns get you.
1: Yeah. Eventually, I mean, if there's global nuclear war, eventually everything is going to get contaminated.
2: <laughs> Even Canada. <laughs> Even Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Even in Canada.
0: So. I think this is a good spot for us to do our quick end of the week recap and just kind of look back at where we were and what has brought us to this point. So we started off this week seeing the fourth and final scout leaving the compound and almost immediately being set upon by a raiding party. After crashing, one of the scouts tried to escape but was quickly recaptured. The uh, raiders then proceeded to brutally attack the scouts. They sexually assaulted one, they left the other one for dead, pinned to a tire, and then Wes led the raiding party away, giving Max the opening to take the black-on-black down to the scene of the attack. And then after killing the raider that was left behind, Max made the deal with the surviving scout as much gas as he could carry in exchange for bringing him back to the compound which is where we find ourselves now here at the end of the week
2: and what a beautiful shot when he pulls up to the compound and you see his point of view from behind the wheel of the uh black on black doesn't that remind you of luke pulling up to the farm on tattooing as he comes around that circle and it's revealed
1: i see this chunk of five minutes and the ending of minute 25 as a gateway to what's going to happen next Mm -hmm. the story is starting to unfold just like in star wars as he pulls up to the farm it is the beginning it's we are working on starting a different part of the adventure and so you know we know exciting things are coming and we saw that transition during these few minutes
0: Yep. So I think the, the real story of the Road Warrior pretty much starts at minute 26. <laughs> I mean, you need all of the setup of the first 25 minutes, but really when it comes to the main meat of the Road Warrior sandwich... Mm -hmm. yeah Monday is where it really kicks off
1: yeah especially because the we're being narrated by the stories being told by not Max and at this point do we know who the narrator is
0: it's going to be revealed to us at the end of the movie because we've seen the entire movie we know that it's the chief of the great northern tribe who is
1: are we gonna say who it is
0: yeah we might as well it's the you know spoiler alert it's It's the feral feral child
1: child. (laughs) 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 I, I, I didn't want to give that away without consulting you yeah so the narrator is the (laughs) feral child so of course the story's really going to begin when the feral child arrives upon the scene
2: that is i never thought about that yeah
1: so up till now we see the story that somebody told the feral child happened before the feral child met the road warrior yep so it's really interesting to see that whoever That it had to, you know, well, it had to have been Max because Max was the only one present for all of the events that we've seen so far.
0: The only situation that would not be directly related to the feral child is technically that first opening chase where Max is being pursued by the bad cop, the buggy raiders and Wes and the golden boy. That part would be completely fabricated as someone is telling it to the feral child because the very next scene after that opening chase is max finding the gyro captain the gyro captain after the events of the road warrior becomes the next leader of that group and because... we have
1: told the story yeah. of how he met max yep yeah that explains why the gyro captain's reaction to watching the woman be raped is so personal Because he is telling the story exactly how he felt. He knows that it's accurate because it's how he felt. He's not telling somebody else's story and how he thinks they felt about seeing a woman being raped. It's first person.
2: Wait a second here. Okay, so what you're saying is that The Road Warrior is a telling of this story by the feral kid. But that's a retelling of the story by the gyro captain.
1: I think so. I think all of the events that have happened so far up until the feral child has a first-hand account had to be told to him by somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think that somebody is the gyro captain. Yeah,
0: because when Max meets the gyro captain, that's really the first thing that is, you know, concrete. This is what happened because someone else saw it. The interaction where Max meets Wes ahead of time, I feel like that's something that the gyro captain could have speculated because as they're sitting up on the ridge, and Max is very intently looking at Wes and the Golden Youth, both in the beginning scene where they're first scoping out the compound and then later on when they're watching the raiders attack the scouts, Max is very intently staring at Wes. And so the gyro captain would say, oh, well, he must have seen him before. And so that gets incorporated into the story that the gyro captain tells. So gyro captain is left behind, Max grabs one of the scouts and then connects up with the feral child. So the feral child would be able to piece two and two together and say oh well you know he grabs nathan brings him back to the compound and so that's why we don't really see anything between max grabbing nathan and max arriving at the compound because it's a gap between what the gyro captain would tell and what the feral child would see yes and so the whole time that max is at the compound feral child is there He's able to see everything that happens. When Max leaves the compound later in the movie with the fuel, the feral child is there, helps him get past the raiders, and then Max wanders out into the dark. The next time we see Max, he's catching up to the gyro captain. And so the gyro captain is able to fill in that part of the story between them getting back to the gyrocopter flying to the rig, and then Max drives the rig back to the compound. Max's trouble with the raiders would be seen by the feral child from the compound, and so he would have all of that information, and then... The reason we don't really see anything happening with the caravan that's actually holding the real fuel, once again, major spoiler alert, (laughs) we don't see any of them because the feral child and the gyro captain follow the rig. They go with Max. Mm. And so when we get that big reveal at the end of the movie, it's because the gyro captain and the feral kid hook up with the rest of the compound dwellers in that other caravan.
1: All right. So this whole story is the gyro captain and the a feral kid kind of working together to figure out what all happened exactly they're putting their stories together filling in gaps
0: and this is the story that the feral child as the leader of the great northern tribe is passing down to the people that are listening to him
2: yeah the official history of the great northern tribe
0: exactly all thanks to the road warrior the man they call max
1: now i will point out that Oral history, ooh, it changes Mm -hmm. a lot with every retelling.
0: Yes,
2: but it doesn't need to be oral. They have writing.
1: That's true. I wonder, I wonder though at (laughs) the amount of supplies they have the amount of writing supplies and implements that they have but they do seem to value this story so even if they do have you know a limited supply of paper and a limited supply of pencils <laughs> that they would deem this story important enough to write down
0: this reminds me yeah. of a scene from i think it's like the second episode of the third season of rick and morty where they <laughs> have gone into a parallel dimension where everything is all mad maxy and <laughs> the character of summer is gone with a bunch of these raider types and and they're using all of these terms like the boom boom times. And so Summer is talking to this raider and she said, did the boom boom times destroy all of your wordy word books? And he, he replies, oh, you mean dictionaries? <laughs> Well, I mean, they have all of these resources still available to them somewhere. And I imagine that once they get to the northern coast, they'd be able to find remnants.
1: Things might be a little more normal of
0: before the collapse.
1: Yeah. I think they're in a better position in the early eighties than we would be now, because so much of our information is digital and take all of that away with a lack of electricity. And
0: Yeah, when was the last We're kind of in trouble? When was the last time the Encyclopedia Britannica printed a new edition? Right. I mean, probably pretty recent, but like no one's heard of it.
1: You know, (laughs) that makes me want to reevaluate our library and make sure it's a little bit more well-rounded so that if we did lose all of our digital information, we would still be okay.
0: You mean Harry Potter and A Song of Ice and Fire aren't comprehensive enough?
1: No.
2: (laughs) Well, the sad part about that is, Julia, even if you did, the most recent information you would have is from 2012. Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay, so we have been talking for quite a while Curtis, it has been a great experience having you here. I'm so glad we were able to connect with you. Could you tell the lovely people listening where they can hear more of you?
2: Well, if you'd like to hear more of me, you can look for the Better Off Dead Minute podcast at all your finer social networks and that's all i'm going to commit to right now i am working on doing a clue minute podcast but the way things are going it probably isn't going to launch until sometime in 2018
1: oh i look forward to that clue is an amazing movie
2: well i'd really like to have you guys on as guests i'm I'm doing an experiment where i i'm just going to be the host and then just only have guests on
0: it would be incredibly difficult to try and narrow down our absolute favorite part of that movie
1: oh Yeah, I, uh, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, in a lot of movies and our movies included, there are minutes that could be called boring that that make for short episodes because not much happens in the minute i don't think there are any minutes like that in clue
2: Mm -mm. they are just no clue is comedy
1: packed
2: full if there isn't something going on in the foreground there's something going on in the background
1: absolutely
2: yep (laughs) and here's the deal here's the here's the part i'm really gritting my teeth about when i finally do embark on this thing i'm gonna run it as a uh, whodunit. I'm going to examine all of the clues and figure out if the clues work out and we can come to the same conclusion as they did in the movie.
1: <laughs> I like it.
0: Very nice.
2: Because there's three different endings and how do the clues all work out for that and it's a game we always play when we watch it uh, around here and to really examine it minute by minute eh, that's that's why I'm so intrigued by it.
1: Yes. Oh, that's a delightful project.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we'll uh, definitely look forward to that. Yes. Uh, well, we'll be back on monday we are going to finally get inside this mystical compound that we've been looking at for the last two weeks it feels like and so come back and uh we'll continue this journey together (laughs) the mad max minute podcast is a fan project by rick and julia ingham
1: the mad max franchise was created by george miller and byron kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures.
0: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBautista.com.
1: You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com.
0: And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full.
1: Thank you for joining us for Minute 25 Five of The Road Warrior. Have a great weekend.